Chapter 18 of The Rainbow Trail by Zane Gray. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. At the Foot of the Rainbow. The Rainbow Bridge was the one great natural phenomenon, the one grand spectacle which Shepherd had ever seen that did not at first give vague disappointment, a confounding of reality, a disenchantment of contrast with what the mind had conceived. But this thing was glorious. It silenced him, yet did not awe or stun. His body and brain, weary and dull from the toil of travel, received a singular and revivifying freshness. He had a strange, mystic perception of this rosy-hued, stupendous arch of stone, as if in a former life it had been a goal he could not reach. This wonder of nature, though all-satisfying, all-fulfilling, to his artist's soul, could not be a resting place for him, a destination where something awaited him, a height he must scale to find peace, the end of his strife. But it seemed all these. He could not understand his perception or his emotion. Still here at last, apparently, was the rainbow of his boyish dreams and of his manhood, a rainbow magnified even beyond those dreams, no longer transparent and ethereal, but solidified, a thing of ages, sweeping up majestically from the red walls, its iris-hued arch against the blue sky. Naste Bega led on down the ledge, and Shefford plodded thoughtfully after him. The others followed. A jutting corner of wall again hid the canyon. The Indian was working round to circle the huge amphitheater. It was slow, irritating, strenuous toil, for the way was on a steep slant, rough and loose and dragging. The rocks were as hard and jagged as lava, and the cactus further hindered progress. When at last the long half-circle had been accomplished, the golden and rosy lights had faded. Again the canyon opened to view. All the walls were pale and steely, and the stone bridge loomed dark. Naste Vega said camp would be made at the bridge, which was now close. Just before they reached it, the Navajo halted with one of his singular actions. Then he stood motionless. Shefford realized that Naste Bega was saying his prayer to this great stone god. Presently, the Indian motioned for Shefford to lead the others and the horses on under the bridge. Shefford did so, and upon turning, was amazed to see the Indian climbing the steep and difficult slope on the other side. All the party watched him until he disappeared behind the huge base of cliff that supported the arch. Shefford selected a level place for camp some few rods away, and here with Lassiter unsaddled and unpacked the lame, drooping mustangs. When this was done, twilight had fallen. Naste Bega appeared, coming down the steep slope on this side of the bridge. Then Shefford divined why the Navajo had made that arduous climb. He would not go under the bridge. Nonesoche was a Navajo god, and Naste Bega, though educated as a white man, was true to the superstition of his ancestors. Naste Bega turned the mustangs loose to fare for what scant grass grew on the bench and slope. Firewood was even harder to find than grass. When the camp duties had been performed and the simple meal eaten, there was gloom gathering in the canyon, and the stars 
had begun to blink in the pale strip of blue above the lofty walls. The place was oppressive, and the fugitives mostly silent. Shefford spread a bed of blankets for the women, and Jane at once lay wearily down. Faye stood beside the flickering fire, and Shefford felt her watching him. He was conscious of a desire to get away from her haunting gaze. To the gentle good night he bade her, she made no response. Shefford moved away into a strange dark shadow cast by the bridge against the pale starlight. It was a weird black belt where he imagined he was invisible, but out of which he could see. There was a slab of rock near the foot of the bridge, and here Shefford composed himself to watch, to feel, to think the unknown thing that seemed to be inevitably coming to him. A slight stiffening of his neck made him aware that he had been continually looking up at the looming arch, and he found that insensibly it had changed and grown. It had never seemed the same any two moments, but that was not what he meant. Near at hand, it was too vast a thing for immediate comprehension. He wanted to ponder on what had formed it, to reflect upon its meaning as to the age and force of nature. Yet all he could do at each moment was to see. White stars hung along the dark curved line. The rim of the arch seemed to shine. The moon must be up somewhere. The far side of the canyon was now a blank black wall. Over its towering rim showed a pale glow. It brightened. The shades in the canyon lightened, then a white disk of moon peered over the dark line. The bridge turned to silver, and the gloomy, shadowy belt it had cast blanched and vanished. Shefford became aware of the presence of Nas Vega, dark, silent, statuesque, with inscrutable eyes uplifted, with all that was spiritual of the Indian, suggested by a somber and tranquil knowledge of his place there. He represented the same to Shefford as a solitary figure of human life brought out of the greatness of a great picture. Nanesoche Boko needed life, wild life, life of its millions of years, and here stood the dark and silent Indian. There was a surge in Shefford's heart, and in his mind a perception of a moment of incalculable change to his soul. And at that moment Fay Larkin stole like a phantom to his side, and stood there with her uncovered head shining and her white face lovely in the moonlight. "'May I stay with you a little?' she asked wistfully. "'I can't sleep.' "'Surely you may,' he replied. "'Does your arm hurt too badly, or are you too tired to sleep?' "'No, it's this place. I, I can't tell you how I feel.' But the feeling was there in her eyes for Shefford to read. He had too great an emotion. Did he read too much? Did he add from his soul? For him, the wild, starry, haunted eyes mirrored all he had seen and felt under Nanesoche. And for herself, they shone eloquently of courage and love. I need to talk, and I don't know how, she said. He was silent but he took her hands and drew her closer. "'Why are you so, so different?' she asked bravely. "'Different?' he echoed. "'Yes, you are kind. You speak the same to me as you used to. But since we started, you've been different somehow.' 
Fay, think how hard and dangerous this trip's been. I've been worried and sick with dread, with, oh, you can't imagine the strain I'm under. How could I be my old self? It isn't worry, I mean. He was too miserable to try to find out what she did mean. Besides, he believed if he let himself think about it, he would know what troubled her. I, I am almost happy, she said softly. Fay, aren't you at all afraid? No, you'll take care of me. Do, do you love me like you did before? Why, child, of course I love you, he replied, brokenly, and he drew her closer. He had never embraced her, never kissed her. But there was a whiteness about her then, a wraith, a something from her soul, and he could only gaze at her. I love you, she whispered. I thought I knew it that, that night. But I'm only finding it out now, and somehow I had to tell you, here. Fay, I haven't said much to you, he said hurriedly, huskily. I haven't had a chance. I love you. I, I ask you, will you be my wife? Of course, she said simply, but the white, moon-blanched face colored with a dark and leaping blush. We'll be married as soon as we get out of the desert, he went on, and we'll forget all, all that's happened. You're so young, you'll forget. I had forgotten already, till this difference came in you, and pretty soon, when I can say something more to you, I'll forget all except Surprise Valley and my evenings in the starlight with you. Say it then, quick. She was leaning against him, holding his hands in her strong clasp, soulful, tender, almost passionate. You couldn't help it. I'm to blame. I remember what I said. What? he queried in amaze. You can kill him. I said that. I made you kill him. Kill whom? cried Shefford. Wagner, I'm to blame. That must be what's made you different. And, oh, I wanted you to know it's all my fault. But I wouldn't be sorry if you weren't. I'm glad he's dead. You think I? Shefford's gasping whisper failed in the shock of the revelation that Fay believed he had killed Wagoner. Then, with the inference, came the staggering truth. Her guiltlessness and a paralyzing joy held him stricken. A powerful hand fell upon Shefford's shoulder, startling him. Naste Bega stood there looking down upon him and Fay. Never had the Indian seemed so dark, inscrutable of face. But in his magnificent bearing, in the spirit that Shefford sensed in him, there were nobility and power and a strange pride. The Indian kept one hand on Shefford's shoulder, and with the other he struck himself on the breast. The action was that of an Indian, impressive and stern, significant of an Indian's prowess. My God, breathed Shefford, very low. Oh, what does he mean, cried Fay. Shefford held her with shaking hands, trying to speak, to fight a way out of these stultifying emotions. Naste Bega, you heard? She thinks I killed Wagoner. All about the Navajo, then, was dark and solemn disproof of her belief. He did not need to speak. His repetition of that savage, almost boastful blow on his breast added only to the dignity and not to the denial of a warrior. Fay, he means he killed the Mormon, said Shefford. He must have, for I did not. 
Ah, murmured Fay, as she leaned to him with passionate, quivering gladness. It was the woman, the human, the soul born in her, that came uppermost then, now, when there was no direct call to the wild and elemental in her nature. She showed a heart above revenge, the instinct of a saving right of truth as Shefford knew them. He took her into his arms, and never had he loved her so well. Naste Bega, you killed the Mormon, declared Shefford, with a voice that had gained strength. No silent Indian suggestion of a deed would suffice in that moment. Shefford needed to hear the Navajo speak, to have Fay hear him speak. Naste Bega, I know I understand, but tell her, speak so she will know. Tell it as a white man would. I heard her cry out, replied the Indian in his slow English. I waited. When he came, I killed him. A poignant why was wrenched from Shefford. Naste Bega stood silent. By nigh. And when that sonorous Indian name rolled in dignity from his lips, he silently stalked away into the gloom. That was his answer to the white man. Shefford bent over Fay, and as the strain on him broke, he held her closer and closer, and his tears streamed down, and his voice broke in exclamations of tenderness and thanksgiving. It did not matter what she had thought, but she must never know what he had thought. He clasped her as something precious he had lost and regained. He was shaken with a passion of remorse. How could he have believed Fay Larkin guilty of murder? Women less wild and less justified than she had been driven to such a deed. Yet, how could he have believed it of her, when for two days he had been with her, had seen her face and deep into her eyes? There was a mystery in his very blindness. He cast the whole thought from him forever. There was no shadow between Fay and him. He had found her. He had saved her. She was free. She was innocent. And suddenly, as he seemed delivered from contending tumults within, he became aware that it was no unresponsive creature that he folded to his breast. He became suddenly alive to the warm, throbbing contact of her bosom, to her strong arms clinging round his neck, to the closed eyes, to the rapt whiteness of her face, and he bent to cold lips that seemed to receive his first kisses as new and strange, but tremulously changed, at last to meet his own, and then to burn with sweet and thrilling fire. My darling, my dreams come true, he said. You are my treasure. I found you here at the foot of the rainbow. What if it is a stone rainbow? If all is not as I had dreamed, I followed a gleam, and it led me to love and faith. Hours afterwards, Shefford walked alone, to and fro, under the bridge. His trouble had given place to serenity, but this night of nights he must live out, wide-eyed to its end. The moon had long since crossed the streak of star-fired blue above, and the canyon was black in shadow. At times, a current of wind, with all the strangeness of that strange country in its hollow moan, rushed through the great stone arch. At other times, there was silence such as Shefford imagined dwelt deep under this rocky world. And still other times, an owl hooted, and the sound was nameless. But it had a mocking echo 
that never ended, an echo of night, silence, gloom, melancholy, death, age, eternity. The Indian lay asleep with his dark face upturned, and the other sleepers lay calm and white in the starlight. Shefford saw in them the meaning of life and the past, the illimitable train of faces that had shone the stars. There was a spirit in the canyon, and whether or not it was what the Navajo embodied in the great Nanesoshi, or the life of this present, or the death of the ages, or the nature so magnificently manifested in those silent, dreaming, waiting walls. The truth for Shefford was that this spirit was God. Life was eternal. Man's immortality lay in himself. Love of a woman was hope, happiness. Brotherhood, that mystic and grand by nigh of the Navajo, that was religion. End of chapter 18